Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Twin Stars and Contextual Voting. In addition, we'll be joined by Matthew McDonald, who will discuss the user's manual for the brain. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And your world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? A little bit worried about the uh, elections. Ah, well, they are coming up pretty quickly now, and do people actually care about that in Japan? <laughs> the expatriates usually have a higher percentage of voting, don't they? Uh, generally, yes. The expatriates tend to be a little more patriotic than the people actually in the country. <laughs> Something about seeing your country from the outside, huh? Right. Well, I think it uh, helps bond you to your fellow countrymen. <laughs> By the way, there's a town here in Japan called Obama. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're wildly enthusiastic about him. Oh, I thought they were going for McCain. <laughs> It turns out where you vote can have an impact on how you vote. In terms of your polling station or in terms of where you are in the country? Uh, in terms of the polling station. Really? Yes, and this is a study carried out with 2,000 people in Arizona in which they found out that people who vote in a school, for example, were more likely to support initiatives that helped education. It turns out this goes across party lines or zip codes. So if you vote in a morgue, do you support initiatives for the dead? I don't know, actually. <laughs> the dead need more rights, you know. <laughs> uh, but this was work carried out by a Professor Jonah at the University of Pennsylvania. And it's actually <laughs> written our very favorite journal, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Well, I wonder how uh, you would vote if you were a twin. I don't know. I used to have an imaginary one, but... <laughs> then you killed him, right? <laughs> yes, but he comes back once in a while. Which are you, the evil one or the good one? <laughs> you better watch out. Better not cry. And you better not be a twin solar sun, either. Doesn't one try to eat up the other? You, I think that's if they're born inside each other. <laughs> Binary stars and actually star systems are actually more common than solitary stars, like our own sun. Oh, really? Yeah. How about tertiary units? Just generally more than one seems to be much more common. Right. When they're in groups like that, they tend to have very similar characteristics, brightness, size, etc. Uh-huh. But there's been a very interesting pair of twin stars found that actually have very different characteristics. One seems to be burning brighter and hotter than another one, which suggests that it's actually much older in terms of when it ignited than its twin. It had different dads. <laughs> <laughs> that is a question. They just don't know exactly how this could have happened because most of the models that exist right now assume that stars are formed in the same manner from right. a protostellar gas cloud. So this was work done by a team of astronomers led by Kevin Strawson of the University of Tennessee, published in the recent edition of Nature, and they're still trying to puzzle over exactly what may have led to the two stars being so different, even though they're twin stars. I wonder if they vote for the same candidate. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because, if, you know, actual twins, human twins, when they're raised together, they tend to be much different than if they're raised apart. Hmm. And the idea is that twins raised together tend to push themselves apart personality-wise in order to distinguish themselves. Right. Maybe competition or whatnot. Right. Huh? Whereas if they're raised apart, they just develop naturally, I guess, according to their genetics. Mm -hmm. Anyway, very fascinating. We're published in a recent edition of Nature. 
And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Matthew McDonald joins to discuss the user's manual for the brain. science show. Well, our brains are a constant mystery. Often we may be confounded by our own behavior or lapses of judgment and memory. However, recent advances in the neurosciences are illustrating new ways to improve the functioning of our brains. Well, joining us today to discuss these issues is Mr. Matthew McDonald. Mr. McDonald is a developer, author, and educator in all things Visual Basic and .NET, on which he's written over a dozen books on the subject. His newest release, though, is Your Brain, The Missing Manual, and explores our brains for a general audience. Mr. McDonald, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, hi. Glad to be here. And I think this is certainly a very fascinating book, sort of a user's manual for the human brain. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, I've always been fascinated with the brain, I guess, like pretty much everyone else. When I was much younger, it, my fascination was with things like optical illusions, you know, how you can, you can look at them and you can never really understand why they're able to fool you. And I guess the more you learn about the brain, the more you realize that everything's sort of like that optical illusion. You know, your brain is doing all this stuff automatically, and that's the story I wanted to tell in this book. Well, it looks like from your career, you're, you're mostly uh, very computer savvy. Did you uh, find many parallels in your investigations between computers and the brain? Right, this is the part where I could tell you that the, <laughs> the brain is just like a giant computer, but in fact it's so much more dramatically complicated and sophisticated that you really couldn't make that kind of comparison, I think. And, and I'd, I've had a love of science and, and an interest in the brain, and I dabbled in computers all along, but now I've gotten to a subject that's, that's probably a lot more important. Well, certainly I think uh, of interest to everybody. I'm curious, what were some of the more uh, fascinating things that you discovered in looking at this issue? Pretty much for me, at every topic, I, I think I, something fascinating springs to mind. Personally, I was amazed with the stories of people who either can't remember anything, you have no long-term memory, or the people who can't forget anything, you know, who have this incredible photographic recall that might go back decades. And that just was one of those things that really illuminates both the incredible capacity of the brain and how much and how little we really understand about it, that it can do these incredible things and work in these incredible ways. Especially memory, which is so much a part of uh, who we are as people, right? Right. I mean, a neuroscience might say there's no real strict line between remembering something and just the whole general process of, of thought. Because as you're forming a, a memory, it's, you're actually altering the connections in your brain. Your brain is changing. Your brain is developing. And as you're remembering it, different neurons are being pulled together the activity sort of ricocheting around <laughs> that circuit board of the brain and just those concepts are being reconstructed I guess and you know there's no strict way to say here's something that I'm actually remembering and here's something that I'm actually putting together an argument and reasoning so when we talk about it we tend to make this strict di distinction but it's just something memory is entire sense of identity I think so it's very similar processes that go in between memory and thought you're saying Memory is one of those real mysteries that I guess neuroscientists really can't pin down. Early, in the early days of neuroscience, they were searching for a big central vault in the brain where all, you know, all memories are stored there. 
And the more we learn about it, the more we realize that memory is not something that we store, but it's the way the different connections throughout our brain are altered. So it's the way that one stimulus, you know, seeing something might trigger a certain pattern of activity through our whole brain. So as you start to realize that memory is really this process, you know, it's not just pulling something out of the vault, but it's actually reconstructing something based on stuff we know and stuff we're sort of making up <laughs> on the go. That process of reconstructing our memory and, and it is similar to the process of reasoning and manipulating ideas and concepts to plan out an action or something, you know, some, some other, something else, something that we'd think is quite different. Although you do go into a lot of the neuroscience of these processes, the book is also geared to being more of a practical guide. And with regards to memory, you actually talk about techniques for improving your memory. Right. I mean, with, with the book, we're trying to do two things. We're illuminating all those weird, quirky things the brain does, which sometimes that can help you recognize mistakes. Other times that can help you uh, give you a great party trick. And then the other side, like you said, is the practical side, where we're trying to, to now that we, you understand how something works in the, in the mind, how can you use that to your advantage? And so there are a few things with memory that fall into that. People want to know, how can I remember things better? So there's, just to give you a couple of ideas there, one idea is paying attention in the first place. Very often, the reason we don't remember something is because it, it didn't scream out its, its importance to us when we first saw it. I mean, our brain is geared to react and remember things that seem like life or death important. You know, if, if you're mugged on the street, you're not going to forget that. On the other hand, you meet your boss's wife at a party, uh, might not remember that, might be important for your future career success, but your brain wasn't paying a lot of attention. So just getting the discipline to realize you might forgetting, be likely to forget something and then forcing yourself to pay more attention, repeat it to yourself. You know, when you meet someone at a party, say, oh, hi, so-and-so, it's nice to meet you, and then make that actual mental effort. That gets you off on the right foot. And then the other set of tips that you could use is there's a whole set of uh, tricks, I guess, called mnemonics that help you associate things that are difficult to remember you know, numbers, grocery lists, the arguments in a speech with things that are easier to remember, like stories and images. And the really fascinating thing there is people who can really have just that incredible episodic memory going back years and years and decades even often seem to do these things, associate the things they want to remember with images and stories automatically and even uncontrollably. So our brains are never going to work like that, but it, we can borrow some of those tricks to help us remember that grocery list. The book certainly is full of interesting tips, and the ones I found interesting are actually these tips for increasing your creativity and problem solving. Yeah, so there's a lot of interest in this whole idea of lateral thinking or breaking out of the box. And really what that's all about is just understanding the automatic assumptions that you always make um, when you're presented with a problem. And the brain is sort of geared to make snap judgments and snap decisions. And this is, has a good side. If you're crossing the street all of a sudden a, a garbage truck is roaring ahead in front of you, you want that snap judgment to get out of the way. But if you're trying to think of something a little bit unusual, you know, a creative business plan, you know, a new idea for a story, something like that, you almost have to defeat that system your brain has of automatically just springing to the most obvious and the most straightforward solution. So there's a set of techniques that can help you 
get adjusted to that and, and start thinking differently. And, you know, you have to really try to not rule out anything right away and just open yourself to different possibilities. And then there's, there's a whole set of techniques there, not developed by me, but, but by other people who work in the field of creative thinking that, that we mentioned in the book. And can, those can help you sort of get started and, and hold that urge to just really lock into the most straightforward solution right away. So part of it is, of course, becoming aware of your biases in this Right. And just reminding yourself before you start your creative thinking, just remind yourself, you know, I'm, uh, I have biases. I've been wrong in the past. You know, I can remember this in this time when I've been wrong and I'm just not going to jump to any conclusion. I'm going to entertain ridiculous ideas. Ridiculous ideas might be ridiculous and they might be terrible ideas, but that doesn't mean they can't by some weird twist and turn lead to a more interesting idea. And we have a couple of really quick scenarios in the book where we show that, you know, forcing yourself to entertain a really absurd idea and then trying to make sense a little bit further down the process and how that can just come up with some new and unique thoughts. And, you know, most of them probably won't be what you want, but this is, this is all just part of stimulating your creative thinking. Another feature of the book, of course, is talking about the best kinds of food to eat for your brain. Right. I mean, nutrition is very important. And just as a really general rule, what's good for the body is good for the brain. So there's nothing earth shattering here. But the brain basically works on, on sugar. It, does, it can't store a big reserve of glucose like muscles can and other things like that. And the amazing thing is the brain is actually only 2% of the average body weight, but it uses, I think, 20% of your body's energy. So it's a, it's a huge sugar hog. It can't actually store any sugar. So if you want to keep yourself sharp and alert, what you want to be doing is looking for things, mainly complex carbohydrates, things that are broken down into sugar slowly over long periods of time to keep you with that steady level of sugar that's going to have your brain not in a fog, but just running, running along optimally. And perhaps another thing for keeping the brain running optimally is getting a good night's rest. Sure, yeah. And sleep's another really important one. And and we talked in the book a a bit about the human rhythm, the circadian rhythm, you know, how it sort of fluctuates. Really what what I would say was really most amazing to me is learning that, I mean, we all understand if you stay awake for two days straight that you're, (laughs) you're going to have some trouble concentrating, reasoning, you might not be at your best. But We talk about a really amazing study that showed if you're continually shortchanging yourself in sleep, that actually accumulates to um, the same performance errors and the same generally decreased performance as missing a complete night of sleep. And so if you're only getting six nights, uh, six hours of sleep, for example, which is, you know, pretty common, keep that up over, say, the actual number is about 10 days of six hours of sleep a day. That's about equivalent, as far as the number of errors you're going to make, to missing one entire night of sleep. Keep that up for two weeks, and it's close to being up for 40 hours straight. So shortchanging yourself in sleep can have a lot of consequences in the body, and it's, it's, it's going to mean your brain's not at its best. Well, I mean, uh, sort of modern society makes a lot of us sleep-deprived. How do we cope with that situation? What, I guess what I would suggest to people is the easiest way, if you're having trouble getting to sleep, for example, you're having trouble sticking to your schedule, because even though we're all busy, we probably could get to bed 
and, you know, in time to sleep in. But, you know, we don't feel like sleeping at the right times usually. You know, usually it rolls around. It's, you know, we're watching TV, we're doing something else, we're talking to someone, we're not feeling tired. Then we get to bed, we don't feel like getting up when we should. So what really complicates things is, is the artificial lighting that we all use. It's also useful, but that light is almost tricking our circadian rhythm, our, our biological clock, into thinking that the day's not really over yet. So having these lights on all the time keeps us, pushes our clock back, you know, 20 minutes, 40 minutes. So we're not getting to bed in time. So if you're having trouble and you want to try and get your eight hours of sleep, the best thing you can do is use light to help you. So dim the lights at night, use bright lights early in the morning. You know, if you're traveling and you're struggling with jet lag, again, you can use light. You know, take a walk when you arrive at your new destination. Take a walk in, in the bright sun. That's going to get you adjusted more quickly. So, so that's probably the best tip I'd give. And along that line, if you ever have to do shift work, that is, that's a real challenge because it, it just completely runs counter to that. And then you really have to work about keeping to the schedule and controlling the light and, and, and getting you know, bright full-spectrum light to shine during the night to try and, and get your body in tune to this new schedule. Uh, sort of geared towards understanding your own brain, but uh, you also have a section on maybe understanding other people's brains. Yeah, we talk, I mean, we talk about understanding the differences between how the male and female brain, I guess, is one of, one of the most interesting ones for understanding other people's brains and really what is um, underpinning the differences. We, you, know, you know, walking around in day-to-day life, Typically, you'll see, you'll see men and women doing different things, right? But the, the million-dollar question is, is it because they have different brains or is it, is it just because of various cultural, the way we behave in society? And we really look at that in, in detail. We look at some are clear-cut examples of one or the other, and then there's a whole gray area in between, and we have a lot of interesting exploration of that. I'm curious, what do you find are the most common questions people have about their brains? Well, people ask, you know, why am I forgetting things? As they get older, there's a lot of interest and anxiety around Alzheimer's. What can they do to try and prevent that? Will brain training, you know, this this is a whole new, almost a a fad of of exercising your brain to try and stave off these kind of problems. I'm sure everyone watching your show is engaged in science and obviously interested in in things like that. So that's really the best way to keep your brain active. And the brain training one really comes up a lot. And I think what I'd say about that is, although there's no slam dunk case that we know that if you sit there doing difficult brain challenging tasks that you're, you're going to stave off Alzheimer's, we do have some really incredible studies that show that people who have lived lives with more brain challenging activity tend to develop Alzheimer's later or not suffer from the consequences as much. And that may be because these people were already different to start off with or it could be that really exercising your brain, really challenging yourself is just going to keep it developing and healthy and that that may help in a, in a wide range of things. So, you know, it's a safe thing to, to try. And if I can go on for just a second longer, I, I'd say that if you want to know what the best things are to develop your brain, it's not really sitting around doing multiplication, doing Sudoku, because your brain will become adjusted, it, it will get used to that, it'll solve that problem, and then it will need very little effort to do it any longer, you know, which is what the brain is designed to do. What you really need to do to train your brain or to exercise your brain is just to do something that is mentally difficult. You know, for a lot of people, that might be learning a new language, picking up an instrument, 
just really doing something completely different that feels mentally difficult, and that is the way, you know, the brain craves novelty. That's the way to, to keep developing your neurons, your synapses, and have the best chance late in life to avoid those things. Well, it certainly sounds like very good advice. We are running slightly out of time, but I'm curious if maybe you can give some final words on the whole issue of the user's manual for the brain. Yeah, I'd just say that the subject of neuroscience is fascinating, and I, if you're the sort of person who'd love to sit down with a giant neuroscience textbook, then I think that's great. Uh, you know, I'm that sort of person. Your Brain is more of a fun kind of book that we were taking some of the most interesting things that have come out of neuroscience and saying, you know, what does this mean for understanding why we're doing the, the weird things we're doing, for maybe tweaking our behavior to to be a bit better, keep, keep ourselves a bit healthier, you know, understand why we're struggling to avoid eating the, the wrong things, and, and just understanding all those quirks and all those automatic things the brain is doing. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, and, and it's a short little manageable book, and I, and I encourage you, if you're curious, check it out. The new book is called Your Brain, The Missing Manual. Uh, Mr. McDonald, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, I was happy to be here. Thanks. And you were just listening to Mr. Matthew McDonald discussing the user's manual for the brain. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Again, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, needs a manual or they don't. And so for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they need a manual or not. Uh, Mr. McDonald, you ready to play the game? <laughs> a little fuzzy on the whole uh, need the manual or not, but I'll go with it. Uh, it's meant to be intentionally fuzzy for you to fill in the blanks. <laughs> All right, here we go. Person number one needs a manual or not, uh, the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. We'll know probably in a few years, but um, it's, yeah, it's looking a little messy with the whole mortgage crisis. I think needs a manual. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully he gets it soon. Uh, person number two is the starlet, Paris Hilton. Does not need a manual. She's completely happy in her niche doing what she does, and uh, it's working for her, I guess. All right. Well, good for her, then. <laughs> uh, person number three is uh, Microsoft Chairman Bill Gates. Yeah, I don't think he needs a manual. He's got it all figured out. He, maybe the people he's leaving behind at his company needs <laughs> some very thick manuals. <laughs> all right. Number four is golfer Tiger Woods. No, it does not need a manual. No. <laughs> Probably got the game figured out by now. Yeah, he's a master. <laughs> okay. All right, and finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, George Bush. 
Yeah, he needs a different manual. <laughs> Let's just say that. Or maybe, maybe just to not adhere so closely to the manual that is his personal favorite at the moment. <laughs> right, right. Perhaps uh, a few extra manuals might help. Yeah, a little flexibility, I guess. <laughs> yeah, a little, a bigger bookshelf. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, uh, Mr. McDonald, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about the book, which is Your Brain, The Missing Manual. Uh, thank you again for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was our pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, here to answer this week's question of the week, straight from Tokyo this time, it's the Tokyo Kid. Tokyo. Ah, uh, yes, thank you, Charles. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back on the Grox Science Show. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you back, especially since you are the fountain of knowledge. One day I will get out of my country and visit the whole world. <laughs> uh, so we have a question for you, Tokyo, is what is Wernicke's area? Indeed. What is Wernicke's area? You know, it's, it sounds like a very German thing to do, the Wernicke. <laughs> So the Wernicke's area is a part of your brain that uh, regulates the speech coordination. And uh, you need it in order to speak uh, reasonably, clearly, well, unlike me. <laughs> no, your Wernicke's area seems to be doing very well. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Tokyo. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Charles. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.